Welcome to the Run Run Live 4.0 podcast, where we plumb the daily adventure of endurance sports. Let us seize this precious moment together and squeeze the life from it like a golden lemon sent to us fresh today from the emissaries of the gods. Terribly happy guy Then he ate a moldy pumpkin pie Then he thought that he just couldn't die So Ned, he laughed so hard and made him cry Made him Hello, my friends, and welcome to episode 4-325 of the Run Run Live podcast, where we do talk about the transformational power or transformative power of endurance sport. How are you doing? You getting your training in? Did you have a good week? Well, it's Friday night for me, and I'm recording for you. Still haven't got my run in. Got some other things to do. Going to be a long night. It seems like everyone is in their full-on fall racing season. I've seen lots of reports and pictures coming in from the Marine Corps and New York and all the other great fall races. My training is going well. It, Well, you know, I've had a couple of bumps this past week, but I'm on schedule for the most part. I'm finishing up weeks uh, five and six since we last talked of a 14-week plan, and I feel pretty strong. I've been getting five runs a week in with three hard workouts, so speed on Tuesday, tempo on Thursday, long on Sunday, with recovery runs on Wednesday and Friday, and I've been doing an easy 45-minute spin on Mondays as an act of recovery from the long run, and I take Saturday off as a rest day, actually as a, uh, as a run around and do chores day. So I banged out a nice hilly 17-miler on Sunday with my buddies. Uh, My speed work was going great until I had to travel this week, and I had a bit of a fail on Tuesday morning that we'll talk about in the running section today. I forgot to tell you something interesting, though, that happened to Buddy and I a few weeks back when we were out running in the woods. So one of our routes is a rough single-path trail that cuts behind an apple orchard, and it was a gloomy sort of rainy afternoon, and... As I was running down the trail, there was a flash, and I kind of looked around because, you know, you're running. You're in, inside your head. You're not paying attention. I figured it must be must be lightning, but it didn't seem to be a lightning type of rainstorm, and there wasn't any thunder. So I was I was thinking about it. I said, you know, that, that, that seemed like a camera. And so sure enough, when we returned back through that same spot, I paid more attention, and it was a camera trap. So maybe you've seen these in wildlife photos where they catch the elusive pink-spotted highland hyena or some such thing in a photo by rigging a camera along a jungle trail with a motion-sensitive trigger. Well, 
someone caught Buddy and me in the wild. So it might be making the news as a Sasquatch sighting, if you pay attention. So maybe they were just trying to stop me from stealing apples. It was a good year for apples in New England. I even got some apples on my own trees in my own garden. The secret is that you have to prune them in the spring. And my wife said to me quite derisively, you don't know how to prune an apple tree. I said, sure I do. I watched a YouTube video. I'm an expert. So in today's interview, we're going to talk with a fella named Butch Bella, who is a successful guy who came back from a triple or quadruple bypass surgery to become a runner. And we talk about a lot of things, including sales as a profession. I've done a number of things in my career, and one of the most rewarding has been running sales organizations. So uh, I want to share some of that experience with you. Hope you enjoy it. And to balance off all that, all that frothiness of selling and enthusiasm, I'm going to include a piece on my experiences with meditation in Section 2. So like I said, I was down, I was traveling this week. I was down in Atlanta, and Tuesday morning I had that speed work fail. <laughs> I had it all planned out. I rolled out, and I hit the hotel treadmill at 4.30 in the morning. And from the start, I was just struggling. I had nothing. And I had to be at work for 7.30, so I was crunched for time. Did a couple 800s and decided that it just wasn't my day. So I had still only quarter of six at this point, and breakfast didn't open till six. So when I walked by the breakfast area, they had coffee out. They pretty much have coffee out 24-7. But there was a lady there setting up breakfast. So I tapped a cup of coffee from the coffee dispenser. And now here's something personal about me you're going to learn. I like a dash of skim milk in my coffee. That's my first choice. That is actually the only milk or cream I ever drink, is that dash of milk in my coffee in the morning. I'm not going to debate nutrition with you folks. You can do what you want, but I don't drink milk except that dash in my coffee. I really like it. And if I can't get that dash of milk, I'll have my coffee black. What I won't do under any circumstances, is use those little tubs of artificial creamer. And again, you're welcome to your opinions, but that stuff is some sort of alien process chemical concoction, and I'm not going to drink it willingly. So I knew they had cartons of milk in the breakfast area, you know, so I approached the breakfast lady and asked if I might not have a carton of skim milk. Her body language and her countenance said something along the lines of, I hate my job, I hate you, and breakfast doesn't open for another 15 minutes. But her words said, give me a minute. And I think you probably have had similar interactions in your life and your travels. So I gave her a minute, and I regaled her with my theories of alien creamers, and she eventually produced the little milk carton for me, and I made a point to make good connection with her best as I could and to thank her for going out of her way when she didn't have to. And an hour later when I came back for breakfast, you know, all cleaned up in my suit and tie, she was still there running things. And I made sure to thank her again and try to be human in my interactions. And her body language and her demeanor was still a bit surly. You know, she certainly wasn't effusive. And the next morning when I came in for my run and wandered into the breakfast area for my carton of milk. She was there, and she said she missed me in the morning, and how was my workout? And we had a nice conversation about how I ran outside on this morning and how the weather was. So what's my point? 
my point is that if I was to rely on my body language sensors, I never would have engaged uh, this 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 other human. And I can make it through my stay and my day without engaging this other human. And how many people like me come through there and treat the people like they're invisible, right? By making an effort to engage, maybe you make somebody's day better. Maybe their job doesn't suck as bad that day. It doesn't cost you anything. As a matter of fact, you profit from it. I felt better about my day now that I managed to have a positive interaction with someone. So how many times have you gone through your day and been so caught up inside your own head that you you treated people like they're invisible? And what could happen if you made an effort to connect? On with the show. It is when we learn to leave our comfort zone that we find ourselves communing with our inner strength. How do you know when it's time to walk away from a workout? I had an interesting week in that at least one of my workouts did not go as well as I thought it would, and I had to walk away. And this led me to think about the rationale I use for quitting. When you're in a training cycle for a race, which I am, it will stretch over three-plus months with 40-plus workouts and around 500 or more miles. You're going to have good days and bad days. It would be great if you could get all the workouts done as prescribed, but that probably isn't going to happen. The goal of the training cycle is to be as consistent as possible. If you crash out of one or two workouts, it probably won't matter. If you consistently can't do or don't perform the work, then you need to reassess the plan. Is it right for you? Or the goal? Is the goal compelling enough to drive you? There are competing dynamics. You want to push your body hard enough that it builds the strength and the endurance to meet your goal, but you don't want to push it so hard that you can't recover. If you don't make it to the starting line of your goal race, you lose by default. In reality, you have to pay attention to your body. You have to proactively do your strength training and your stretching and all that. You have to go into every workout with the confidence and drive to get it done, but be mature enough to know when to step away. So here's a rule of thumb that I go by. You have to at least show up and attempt the workout. You really can't judge your ability to complete a workout by how you feel going into it. You will have awesome workouts that start with you feeling crappy. You will have crappy workouts that start with you feeling awesome. You have to show up to find out. You can't walk away without trying. But, but how do you make that call? Well, the first thing you want to pay attention to are physiological signs that you might be overtrained or under the weather. Even if you're not coughing up phlegm balls, you can still have some sort of low-level sickness running around that can affect your training. I'll get worn down by travel, lack of sleep, work stress, and that all adds on top of the normal training stress, and that might be enough to push me over the safety line. If you use a heart rate monitor, you can periodically check your resting heart rate. An elevated resting heart rate can point to exhaustion or or sickness. That's one way you can check. You can check if you feel more achy than usual. Might be a sign of something. Do you have specific pains that just don't seem seem normal? Is there something that really hurts and it doesn't hurt in a good way? 
is your energy level chronically low? And this one is tricky because I don't know about you, but your energy will ebb and flow throughout the training cycle. And being low energy for a couple days straight for no reason at all, that might point to overtraining. So when you start the workout, does your heart rate soar and not come down? Or is your breathing out of control even after you've warmed up? Are your feet slapping the ground? Does your body feel sluggish? It's better to call off one hard workout to walk away than it is to screw up your entire training cycle or injure yourself. If you're in a weakened state, you're less likely to benefit from a hard workout and more likely to injure yourself. You can make the call to cut that workout short. Now, what do you do then? Well, When you walk away from a workout, you might feel like a failure, and you're going to be down on yourself. And frankly, this is an area where a coach can help a lot. If you have a coach that can talk you down off the ledge and tell you it's okay, you can can have a couple bad workouts, it's okay, and they'll tweak your plan to accommodate that bad day. It's usually a bad idea to try to make up a workout that typically just compounds your problems. Just let this one go and move on to your next one. Don't try to add more to the next workout to make up for it either. That never works, and it's just dumb. So sometimes it's just the day or the time of day that gives you trouble. For example, if you had to get up at 3 a.m. in the cold to do your workout and your body just couldn't pull it off, in this case, you're not really sick or overtrained. You're just struggling with the schedule and the timing. And in these cases, you might want to just do less volume or do it at a lower level of effort, or split it up. Instead of six miles, do three or four miles. Instead of six minutes a mile, do seven minutes a mile. Instead of 1,600s, do 800s. And instead of that one long, big workout of 10 yasos in the morning, do five in the morning, then another five in, in the afternoon or at night. Now, sometimes you can shift the whole week around and get the workout in. If you have a Tuesday-Thursday hard workout, maybe instead you can do a Wednesday-Friday. But really try try to avoid doing back-to-back hard days. That leads to injury. But you can be flexible in the spacing of your workouts. You don't have to be dogmatic. Finally, if you just can't do the scheduled hard workout, you can switch to an easier workout. Instead of that set of hard intervals, just run easy for 40 minutes. This maintains the cadence of your training cycle but allows your body to recover a bit. So it's okay to walk away from a hard workout once or twice in your training cycle. As long as you maintain the overall training level and consistency, it won't negatively impact your goal race. You have to keep your eyes on the prize. It's easy to get lost in the blur of workouts in a training schedule and lose that perspective. And sometimes it's better in the long run to walk away. Just remember the checklist. Don't give up without at least trying. Check your body to see if something is going on that you need to be aware of. Don't try to make it up or to double down. Switch the intensity or the timing of the workout to mitigate the impact. And try to be consistent to the plan over the course of the entire training cycle. So stay safe and train smart. And now for today's featured interview. So, Butch, how are you, man? I'm great. How are you? 
So this is going to be fun because you embody a, a number of things that I that I like in people to talk to. You're you're a professional guy, a sales guy. You're kind of an entrepreneur. You know, you've had that that transformational experience with running, and it also sounds like you're kind of on the addicted to running curve. You're doing that thing where people first get involved in running and they they kind of go crazy for it for a while. Yeah, I've I've been so, through all of those. So you've got a great story. So give us the give us a story in uh, you know two hundred words or less. Uh, well, I um, was never a runner. Was on the fast track to building a career my entire adult life. In May of two thousand and nine, uh, I had triple bypass heart surgery, and it was one of those things that I, I I've turned around and used it for sales training. That if you would have asked me May eighteenth of two thousand nine, you know Butch. How would you like triple bypass heart surgery? We got it on sale. You know, <laughs> I would have told you, I, I don't know. I don't want it. I don't need it. And I can't afford it. And that's the stuff salespeople hear every day. But then when the next day they showed me that I had a 72, 80s and a 90% blockage, I'm all in. You know, I, yeah. I changed my tune. I, I They converted that, that need to a want. I needed it long before I got it, but I, I got it when I wanted it. And so I went through that. I, I got lucky. I didn't have a heart attack. I caught it before it caught me. Yeah, in our world, we we call that a compelling event. Exactly. Right. Exactly. <laughs> and it was. And up until that point, if I was running, there was a, a building on fire behind me. I was a 25 year smoker, and I was a I call I always say I'm a Shiite smoker. I was good at it, man. I de, I defended my smoking rights. I worked for a cigarette company. So it was one of those things to where running and health was the farthest thing from my mind. I was really focused on career, climbing the ladder, making more money, you know, grabbing more accolades and so forth. And then that all came crashing down May 18th of 2009. So, and you are basically, uh, you were 42 at the time, 43. Right? I, uh, 43. I was 43. Yeah. And I, I was, my dad had his first heart attack at 44. So I set the family record by a little over six months. <laughs> and it was an eye-opening experience. And here's the crazy part. I, I was not scared uh, because I had been through it twice with my dad before he passed away. He had had two open-heart surgeries. I was more concerned about my wife and the three kids and what they would go through sitting out in the waiting room. And I, I knew how excruciating that was. I mean, I had, I really, to be honest with you, Chris, I had the easy part. And I know that's that sounds very uh, cliche that sounds very easy to say but that was honestly the truth i really felt like you know i got the easy part they're going to give me the knockout drugs and i'm going to go to sleep and you know they're going to be in there worried about daddy and so make a long story short i came through uh heart surgery fine ended up doing a quadruple uh bypass with i had three blockages and uh they did a actually had to end up doing a quadruple but it was a, considered a triple bypass but to make a long story short in cardiac rehab which is what they put you through after your surgery they put you on an exercise program to start getting you up and getting you active because the last thing they want is fluid settling in your lungs uh and so forth but really they want you up and moving around as quick as possible and I was at the time 240 pounds, maybe at five seven, so I was way out of shape. And I can remember going into cardiac rehab, and I always tell people it was 
and I'm going to write a book one of these days about it, but it was the old exercise guy, the little guy that jumps around. Oh, yeah, yeah, with the, yeah, the, I know you The Afro, about. the little guy. Simon Simmons? Uh, Gene uh, Simmons? Uh, no, uh, no, Richard Simmons. Richard Simmons. Simmons. Richard yeah. Simmons. You know, he's got sweating to the oldies. I was actually sweating with the oldies. You know, I'm 43. Yeah. It's me and a bunch of 80-year-old guys in there. And the great part was, Chris, is when I walked in, I'm the body they're looking for. You know, <laughs> so that's the, that's the first time I'd ever been in a work workout facility where they're going, I wish I looked like that fellow, you know? And so I can remember literally walking on the treadmill and being hooked up to all the machines and all the EKGs and everything. And they would literally let me walk at like a pace that was like step, step, step. And it was so frustrating to me because I felt like I could do more and I'm so competitive. And they would let me walk for like two minutes at a time and then shut it down. And I would do a few little arm exercises and stretches and then I'm done. I mean, it was just to get you up and around moving. So one day about a weekend, this young African-American gentleman walks up to me. His name is Dominique. And I always tell people that the surgeon corrected my problem. My exercise therapist saved my life because the surgeon could only fix what I had done before. He could never, there's nothing he could do to keep me from getting back in that shape again. And so this young uh, African-American gentleman, Dominique, he was probably in his 20s. He said, Butch, what are you in here for? And I said, cardiac rehab. He said, no, what are you in here for? And I said, because I had heart surgery. And he said, no, what are you in here for? And all of a sudden it dawned on me. He was wanting me to set a goal. And Chris, to this day, I don't know where it came from. I don't know why I said it. I don't know if it was a divine intervention. I don't know if it was a God thing that it just came out. I said, I want to run a 5K. And I'm going to get chill bumps telling this, but I'll never forget what he said to me. And I can hear it like he said it yesterday. He said, we're not going to let heart surgery stop us. Right. Now think about that. We're not going to let heart surgery stop us. Yeah. So he he was a good reader of people. Not only that, but now I had an accountability partner. Yeah. Now I can't yep. let yep. him down. Yeah. Well, here's what I was doing is is I had set this this goal of running this 5K, and he said, well, "Which one you don't do you want to run?" This is in like June, and in our town there was a thing they called the Turkey Trot that they ran at Thanksgiving a 5K. So I want to run the Turkey Trot at Thanksgiving. He said, "All right, we're going to run it." Now keep in mind, I'm on the treadmill for 10, 20 seconds at a time at this point. Yeah, and I have no idea how far a five k is, how long it takes. You know, can I? But I just that was what came out of my mouth. I'll, I'll cut to the short version of the story. One hundred and ninety days after surgery at the Turkey Trot five uh, k, I ran my first ever five k in thirty six minutes and forty five seconds. Didn't walk a step of it, and he was by my side the entire way. That's great. In the ensuing year, I ran probably twenty some odd five k's. Since then, I have run at least 55 Ks, half a dozen 10 Ks, and two half marathons. And there you go. You got was, the bug. Oh, yeah. yeah. It, but here's the thing is after my last half marathon, which was a year and a half ago, it was the uh, Lone Star Half Marathon in Arlington, Texas. You run around the Texas Rangers Baseball Park, the Dallas Cowboys Stadium, Six Flags, beautiful run. Side note. They had mismarked the course. We actually ended up running 13.8 miles, so I'm looking for a 13.8 sticker for my car. But I crossed the finish line, Chris, and I was like doubled over in pain. 
and I had this this pain in the pit of my back that was just unlike any. It was like somebody was sticking a nice knife in me. I literally yeah. had to get stop and get a bag of ice to put behind my back in my truck so I could get home. I mean, I was like I couldn't hardly really move. And I get to the doctor, and I've got a cyst growing on my spine, huh. and it was just sitting on a nerve. So they cut out a cyst the size of your fist off out of the pit of my back, so I can't run for several months. So I fell off the wagon. Yeah, and I quit running, but I kept eating like I was running. Well, I put on <laughs> I put on forty pounds in no time. And here's when I go speak. I tell people is that I had set a goal, but I didn't change my habits. Yep. And the whole key to changing anything, your business, your life, your health, or whatever, is to develop new habits. I, I wrote a sales book a couple of years ago, uh, The Ten Essential Habits of Sales Superstars, and, and it's all about developing good habits. And we've all heard our whole life that it takes 21 days or 60 days or whatever to establish a habit. I tell everybody, that's garbage. I smoked for 25 years. I quit January 1st of 2009, which was before my heart surgery. But if I were to have a cigarette right now, I'd have a carton before this interview was over. <laughs> and then I'd have to go lay down to the, for the nicotine high to go away. So it, yeah. it's not going to take 21 days for me to establish a habit. It takes 21 yeah. days to establish a good habit. But I was so yeah. focused on the end goal, I was not establishing those good habits along the way. Well, I mean, there's there's so many things that I see in your story that are just recurring themes, right? Um, you know, first of all, is the initial thing where you had to have some sort of event for you to sort of see the light, right? Absolutely. And then you had uh, a mentor, right? So it's really this hero's journey, right? You have a challenge, you have a mentor that helps you. And if you look at the, all the physical therapists and the coaches in this world who you know, they, they don't get paid and they just do it out of love. God bless them because they are really helping people and changing the world, right? Well, and the one thing I found once I got started, because I was a slow runner. My first half marathon, I'll tell you a funny story. I, I, I trained and trained and trained. I went through the, and I don't even know enough to know what they call I'm sure there's a name for the training uh, regimen, but it was, you know, two or three, three or four mile runs during the week and then long run on Saturday and so forth. And uh, you rest up the week before the marathon, the half marathon. And, you know, I go through the eight mile Saturday, nine mile Saturday, 10 mile Saturday. And I'm really thinking, okay, I, I can do this. And it was, uh, in the fall of 2013, it was the jazz half marathon in New Orleans. And I get down there and it's like 80% humidity, yeah. uh, 78 degrees. And cause my goal had been two and a half hours for a half. And that's slow. At about mile eight and mile nine, somewhere between eight and nine, both calves started cramping to the point where I didn't know if I could keep moving. And so I had my iPhone in my little wristband that I was listening to music on, and I, and I called my wife because being a heart patient, she was, you know, waiting for me at the end. And she, I said, honey, don't, don't, don't freak out if I'm not there at 2.30. You know, um, I, I'm cramped up. I'm having to stop at every water station. I'm really just, I'm, I just want to finish. And and she said, "Hey, there's people passing out at the finish line in a lot better shape than you are. Just, you know, don't kill yourself." <laughs> and so I said, "Well, I, I want to make it in 2:45." Well, about a mile 11, then you know the hamstrings start seizing up, and so literally, yeah. I'm just from the waist down. I'm just, it's it's all 
mental. There's there's no physical aspect to this now. It's all mental, just pushing through it. So I called her back and I said, "Don't worry about two forty-five." I said, "I got to finish it under three hours." I said, I, "If I finish it over three hours, I'm gonna be so disappointed." So I just I had that little app on my phone that tells me you're at this pace, you're this far behind your target pace, and so forth. And I crossed the finish line, two hours fifty-nine minutes and fifty-three seconds. I made it by seven seconds. So. And you were probably hustling that last hundred feet, oh, right? Yeah, I, yeah. And it was one of those things to where when I crossed the line, you know, well, there was no arms in the air or anything like that. It was just like, you know, get me somewhere where I can lay down, you know. Yeah, yeah. Well, that's uh, that's an electrolyte problem. We can fix that. The the thing I wanted to ask you, though, is you're obviously a, a really bright guy, very successful businessman. You know, you're, you've obviously got, you know, you're the type of person who controls their life and plans their life and proactively does things, right? Now, how did you let yourself get into this situation where you had to have quadruple heart bypass? You know, how did you let your life get out of balance like that? What were you thinking? Well, I asked, you know, I asked the doctor, was it because of smoking? Because I, I was a smoker. He said smoking had nothing to do with it. It was genetics, and I'm a type 2 diabetic. So he, he thinks that it was diabetes and genetics. But I was, you know, 70 pounds overweight. But it was one of those things to where I was so focused on my career that I put health and other things on the back burner. I, I was totally out of balance. I've tried to be more balanced now. I'm not near as good as I could be even today. You know, I need to lose another 30 pounds now. Um, I'm back trying to do that now. You know, when you fall off the wagon, you tend to get uh, discouraged because you, after that half marathon that I ran and after I had back surgery, you know, I go from running 13.1 miles to where once they started letting me run again, I couldn't run a mile. And yep. for a competitive yep. person, there is a physical, a mental, and a, an emotional impact to that, that you just feel like, oh, my God, I'm, 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 I'm horrible. I'm defeated. And I'm reading a book right now called Mindsets, and I think that's – Oh, I am too. Yeah. I'm halfway through yeah. that. What an awesome book. It's huh? amazing, and it's about fixed mindsets and the fact that if you live with a fixed mindset thinking that what you have or where you're at is all you're going to be – then you tend to shy away from things that get you outside your comfort zone. Or that because you get outside your comfort zone, you get, what, uncomfortable. And you say, oh, i got to get right back in my comfort zone. No, that's called growth. Um, It's just like going to lift. The first day Arnold Schwarzenegger stepped into a gym, I promise you, he didn't look like he does now. But it's a growth mindset of, of being able to tolerate the pain, the short-term pain for the long-term progress. So this is also a very common theme when you look at endurance athletes, even myself. You know, you have times when you come off a peak performance and you get some sort of injury where you're you're asking yourself the question, am I ever going to run again? Will I ever be at that level again? And that's the wrong question. When you're stepping out, the question should be, how friggin' grateful am I to be out on the trail with my dog? You know, whether it's five minutes or one minute or whatever, right? So you just got to totally reset and put all that other baggage aside and take what you have. Well, and I I think that's the thing is you can't um, judge where I'm at today and let that define me any more than I can look back and let running a half marathon in, you know, three hours define me. If you're going to, if you're going to let something define you, who are you to choose what it is? You're a combination of all the things you've gone through. 
Right. And the also the discomfort. So when you get out into something, whatever it is, and you feel that mental discomfort, that sort of fear, that should make a light bulb go off that says, oh, wait a second. This is that fixed mindset again. I should lean into this fear. I should move towards exactly. it. Exactly. Don't run right. from it. The worst thing you can do is run from it. Right. And it's funny because people like you and I, we, you know, I, I'm, I'm a sales professional as well in my career. And so you'd think we're fearless guys, but we have our fixed mindset around that as well. We just have our processes to, you know, to create the abundance in that particular environment. Well, and here, here's right? the thing that I say when I speak and I train salespeople, and, and, and I do that a whole heck of a lot more than I run, but you, you think of the most successful person you know. They have had the same fears you've had. They've had that same little voice in their head that questioned their ability, that questioned whether they were good enough, um, that told them they weren't good enough. They had those same little voices in their head that you have. But here's the trick. They didn't listen to them. And another book I read called The Untethered Soul, just a phenomenal book, and it talks about the fact that if if you ever record your voice and listen back to it, you always go, well, I don't sound like that, okay, because that's not the voice you hear in your head. Well, right. guess what? The voice on the tape is you. So if the voice yeah. in your head doesn't sound like you, it's not you. So right. that little voice telling you you're not good enough or you can't do it or you shouldn't even try it, that's not you. It's funny, and you know, going back to his sales, right? So, if you we were to line up uh, the college graduates from the local college, right, and line them up and say to a hundred kids, "Okay, who wants to go into sales?" Right. You know, you'd have you'd have two people raise their hands, right? And if you if you ask the other ninety nine, you know, why not? They'd say, "Oh, I don't want to be in sales. That's terrible. Why would anybody want sure. to do that? Why is sales as a profession vilified?" But there, here's here's the problem with sales today, and, and this is I'm going to get off away from running a second because this is <laughs> this is truly my mission in life. My mission in life is to professionalize the profession of sales, and here's why: is there such a low barrier of entry? It kills me all the time to have somebody say, uh, "Well, I can't get any other job. I guess I'll go be a salesman." Really? You know, you, I can't put on a white coat and start pulling teeth Monday morning. I'll go to jail. You know, everything we do is a learned skill, just like a dentist or a doctor or an attorney or a nurse or a beautician or what. You have to have a license in most states to cut hair. <laughs> Yet you can go order a box of business cards and call yourself a salesman. That's what's wrong with the sales profession is that we let anybody and everybody in. Now, I'm not saying we should create this exclusive club, but I'm saying if we're going to have people come in, at least train your people. If you're not going to train them, Zig Ziglar used to say the only thing worse than hiring somebody or training somebody and losing them is not training them and keeping them. Yeah. And that's yeah. so true. Yeah, well, I, you know, if you take the label off it, if you take the label sales off it, and you look at it as, hey, how would you like a career where you have to, uh, you know, be able to present yourself, you have to be able to con talk to people, you know, if you look at the actual skill sets involved, they're the most powerful business skill sets there are, right? Absolutely, and 
too many people think sales is something you do to people rather than for them. And there's right. just this big misnomer about what a, a salesperson twists people's arm and they talk them into things they don't want. Guess what? Nobody can talk you into something you don't want. A, a salesperson doesn't sell anybody anything. They help them buy something. Yeah. So, no, I'm, I'm with you on that. And it just uh, it stymies me why there's such a, a large opportunity for growth for most people. Um, if you just take the labels off and take the sort of the, the bad taste out of it, there's a opportunity for growth for most people. And those skill sets are applicable to any job, to any career, any community work you're doing. Those skill sets are applicable. Absolutely. It's always been very interesting to me. But that's why I moved towards the blue ocean. Speaking of other books, right? Right. So it's a blue ocean place. You want to go to a place where there's little competition and lots of opportunity. That's a, that's a place where there is. And the thing about it is that the, the profession of sales it is like running because you start out um, not knowing what you're doing, but everybody wants to start out being the greatest that there is. And it just like in running, you'd go in each day to get better. You go in each day to get faster, to get stronger. And everything a runner does, they learn. They don't go in knowing this is the type shoe that best fits my style. This is the type stretches I need to do before and after. This is how I work myself up to a 5K. This is how I pattern my breathing. It's the same way with being a salesperson. Every bit of that is learned. But if you go in day one um, wanting to qualify for the Olympics, first day you strap on your shoes, you're going to be extremely disappointed and you're going to quit. Yeah, and the other thing is when you in, – in, in sales as a profession, and in a lot of professions, you have these moments of truth, right? And sales just happens to have a lot more moments of truth than other jobs where you're in front of a client or you're in a situation where you have to make a big impact, right? That's your race. Sure. And you don't show up for those races on train. <laughs> exactly. Sales is a marathon, not a sprint. It is a career, not a job. You don't go in to every sales job or sales opportunity or sales career looking at, man, just get me through to Friday. That is, that's a sprint. You look at it as a marathon of how am I going to build my career? What am I going to do to get better, to improve my skills, to, to, to better satisfy and serve my clients? That's how you build that. Brick at a time. Right, absolutely. And that, that brings us back to habits, right? And I think that's really the, the common thread in anything where you're trying to, you know, self-improvement of any, any kind, whether it's professional, personal, or whichever garden you happen to be tending, it, it comes back to habits, right? Absolutely. And, and developing good habits that you do day in, day out, week in, week out. It's just like, you know, we've had a ton of rain here where I live right now. And I haven't run the real runners. And again, I don't really still consider myself a real runner. Um, and I know everybody says, Hey, if you run, you're a real runner. Well, I'm not the fastest guy in the world. I'm not out there running eight minute miles. You know, um, you, you figure you do the math on a, a three hour marathon. I'm or a half marathon. I'm running, you know, 12 and a half, 13 minute miles. You know, I, I shoot for negative splits, but I very seldom make them. I'm, I'm the guy that goes out even in a 5K and, you know, 
can't get it through my thick skull to pace myself and, you know, start slow and finish strong. I'm, you know, I start strong and finish slow. And so, I mean, it's just, you know, the things that you have to get in the habit of doing and learning and, and understand that there's always somebody better than you. There's always somebody working harder than you. This weekend, I saw people out running, and I'm thinking, oh, those are the real runners. No, those are just people that got in the habit of getting up, guess what, whether it's <laughs> rain or shine, and they went and ran. Yeah, and you can flip that over. You know, when I'm out in the middle of winter up here in New England, and I'll get into some, you know, some bizarre minus, you know, minus degrees with the wind chill, right. I'll just start laughing. So I'll go, I'll just say, is this the best you can do? Because I can handle this. Right. Right. And and that's the difference, right? It's attitude, you know, it's you say that's a strength. Right? So those people who are out running in the rain, they're thinking, This is my opportunity to get stronger. Well, and and the other thing too is it's just going back to to, to sales. The successful people do the things the unsuccessful people don't want to do. And that's the only difference. We're all born naked. We're all born with the same set of skills, the same undeveloped talents and, and so forth. And those that develop them are those that succeed. Yeah. And I was uh, I was talking to one of my mentors this morning and, and he told me, he said, you know, what you have to do is you have to look at the way you talk. And every place where you say no or not or but, try to say the same thing without saying those. Right. And you'll have a much better narrative at the end of the day. You'll be empowered. Yeah, I just speaking, and we, it sounds like we both are avid readers. I just finished the book Essentialism, and right. he talks about being very slow to say yes and quick to say no, and that means that we fill our lives up with things that we say yes to, and then we say, well, I don't have time to run because i got to do this. this, this. Well, really, how many of those things are really essential to your life? And we fill ourselves up our life up with all of these things that are not essential to moving our life forward, our family forward, our career forward. And too many times we take on things because we don't want to let someone else down and we end up putting ourselves in a bind and things that we should be doing to take care of our own health, our own life, our own spiritual health, mental health, physical health, whatever the case may be. Those things take a back seat because we have said yes to other people. Right. And and I think um, one of the things you've learned in this process and that, again, is another common thread is what people discover is that by taking care of themselves, they're actually taking care of others. Oh, absolutely. They can't serve others unless they take care of themselves. And I have used I have used my heart surgery as as a a speaking topic. I'll tell you a funny story real quick, kind of off the subject that, you know, and, and if any of your listeners have ever been through um, bypass surgery, they know that you come out and, and, and they and I knew because I'd seen my dad go through it. But they tell you everything. OK, you're going to come out when you first wake up. You're going to have the tube down your throat. Your arms are going to be tied down because we don't want you pulling at it. Your head's immobilized and just, you know. When you come to, you're going to really freak out. Be prepared for it because your brain's going to kick in, but you can't move anything. And I kid you not, I woke up. I don't know how long I was out. The surgery was a Wednesday morning. I don't know if it was Wednesday night, if it was Wednesday afternoon. If I don't know when I woke up. But I can remember you know, waking up and seeing the light above my, my bed. And it was my arms where I couldn't tie down. I had the tube down my throat, so I couldn't talk. It was, you know, I was on the respirator. And 
I hear these two nurses talking in my room. Now, I had been through my dad's two surgeries. I had been through about 48 hours of planning for mine. I didn't have a whole lot of time, about 36 hours to get used to it and get ready for it. Never once did I hear the term cabbage. Now, for some of your listeners, they probably are in the profession. They're laughing right now because they know. C-A-B-G stands for coronary artery bypass graft. Okay? That's what they call a bypass, a cabbage. And it's a way, it's kind of a slang term that doctors and nurses use. You got a cabbage in room one, there's a valve in room four, there's a, you know, whatever, you know, in room five, whatever. So, I mean, it's just their way of saying bypass. Never heard that. Nobody ever told me to be aware of this term. I mean, I didn't have a book. So I wake up and come to, and I'm looking at the light, <laughs> and there's two nurses. I can't see them. It's a male and a female voice. They're at the foot of my bed or somewhere down below my bed. And they're in my room. I can hear them talking. And I just, I come to, and I'm very cognizant of my surroundings. I know that I've survived. I know that what condition I'm in. I know I'm fighting this respirator and wanting my arms to move. And I hear, boy, he sure is young to be a cabbage. And the, the other one said, yeah, one, one of the youngest that I've ever seen. <laughs> and yeah. I can't talk, but in my brain, I'm screaming, Oh hell, I'm a vegetable. <laughs> you know, it didn't go well. You know, something went wrong. You know, and and so I'm sitting there and I'm like elephant man trying to scream, "Don't talk about me!" You know, and and so after I was able to talk to them and communicate and had the tube out, I told them they got the biggest kick out of that. They said, "You know, we really don't think about you being able to hear us. We don't think about when y'all wake up, you being able to hear us." And you're, I said, "You know, I'm just, I just thank God that you weren't talking about some fellow." of four doors down going, I don't really think he's going to make it. You know? yeah. <laughs> That's not what you want to wake up and hear. So uh, so let's take this to the exit here, Butch. All right. Give us your uh, top one, two, three things you learned through this whole process. You can do anything you set your mind to. Nothing is impossible. Um, if, if somebody tells you you can't, get remove those people from your life. Second thing I tell you is life is too short to live with regrets. When I decided I wanted to run a 5K, I did it. That wasn't good enough. I had to run a 10K. I did it. I had to run a half marathon. I did it. Don't be worried about being the best at it. Don't be worried about crossing the finish line and being first in your age group. Just get out and do it. And the third yeah. thing is establishing the habits that you yeah. do day in, day out, week in, week out whether that is nutrition, whether it's exercise. Hey, it, you know what it could be? It could be just picking up the phone if you're, if you're like me in an empty nester, calling your kids, you know, every couple of days, checking on them. Um, sending a text message to your wife at lunch or something. Get in the habit of doing things that will leave a lasting impact on other people. Yeah. Good stuff. Good stuff, man. I'll let you go. I'll let you get back. Chris, to thank you so much, buddy. Thank you so much for having me. Listen, I want to do something for your listeners, and I know they're not all in sales, but I don't have a running book. Uh, <laughs> I, I will one of these days, maybe. But I, I, if they will go to butchbella.com, B-U-T-C-H-B-E-L-L-A-H.com slash run, run, live, they can download a free copy of my first book, The Ten Essential Habits of Sales Superstars, Plugging into the Power of Ten. 
Uh, they can get a free copy there just for being one of your listeners. And my new book is on sale, uh, sales management for dummies. They can pick that up there if they'd like, but they don't have to. They can just, that's not a prerequisite. They just get a free copy of my first book just for being one of your listeners at butchbella.com slash run, run, live. Yep. I got a copy of that and I like it. I paged through it. And uh, I'd send you a copy of my book on how to qualify for the Boston Marathon, but I don't want to be responsible for the <laughs> for the death of another individual. So, uh, you know, there was a time where that was a, there was a time where that was a goal, and then I said, you know what, I'm not even going to go there because I know that my body at this point in my life, I just turned 50, I'm not built for that. Now, could I do it? Yeah, but there's other things in my life that I want to accomplish. Um, there's other races I want to run. There's other things I want to do. Uh, yeah. and, and it's, and it's, it's always, you know, keep something out in front of you that keeps you excited, that keeps you moving forward. And if it's Boston, great. If it's Chicago, New York, whatever it is, if it's to be one of these half fanatics, you know, there's a place in, in Dallas, and I know there's other places that run these kind of uh, novelty races. There's a place in Dallas that uh, on New Year's Eve, they run one half marathon. On New Year's Day, they run another half. So you're running two halves, two separate days, two separate years. Right. And so there's little things like that. Pick out something like that. Put yeah, that in yeah. your sights and go do that. Yeah, that's fun. Yeah. All right, man. Chris, thank I'll, you so uh, much for thinking. I'll let you go. If I can help you with anything or any of your listeners, just uh, put a link in the show notes where they can reach out to me. Yep. I'll put it all in the notes. All right, brother. Thank all you right. so much. Thanks, man. Cheers. Sometimes it takes a third party to tell us what we already know. How to find quiet space. Quiet space. The journey to silence. The challenge we have is that we slam ourselves right into our days. Coffee in one hand, cell phone in the other. We go from bed directly into the milieu of emails and social media posts, especially in our current world. We don't give our brains any free space. And without that free space, it's hard for your mind to relax. You feel like you're constantly running or reacting. How do you make space in your mind? Why do you care? Why would you want to make space in your mind? Well, first, because unless you take control of it and find space, you'll exist in a state of constant mental reaction. By being in that state of mental reaction, you tend to focus on what is urgent rather than what is important. You're at risk of losing your perspective. You run the risk of missing essentially important things that you don't have time to think about. And secondly, because you're creating or training yourself as a vessel for others' priorities. If you exist to react to the buzz of the world, you're being programmed and directed by external forces. Finally, it creates an unsettled mind. This constant distraction and noisiness conditions your mind to exist in an, in an agitated state. You risk losing your ability to think deeply. You risk developing a playbook of reactions to stimuli as opposed to a thoughtful consideration of your path. And silence is one way to make space in your mind for peace. And I had to go back into the archives and see when I had interviewed Hal Elrod. And it says it was April of 2014. 
That's longer ago than I thought it was. Time flies when you're living life. That's around the time that I started testing out silence, or in the common parlance, meditation. See, I grew up on the East Coast, and we didn't believe in any kind of Eastern mythology or pseudoscience. We show up, we work hard, we suffer, that's what we do, that's our strategy, and it's made us successful for the last hundred years or so. That's the East Coast culture. And we always laughed derisively at those people in California and their wacky philosophies. Meditation, who needs meditation? What a waste of time. You got problems, suck it up and work harder. You'll fix those problems or they'll fix themselves. But I like to think I have an open mind. Starting a couple years ago, the topic and practice of meditation kept coming up. Successful people that I follow consistently cited meditation as part of their practice. And then I read Hal's book, The Miracle Morning, and I interviewed him. And part of his success routine was starting each day with a period of silence. So I said, give it a try. I was fairly sure I couldn't jump into the full-blown meditation thing, but I decided to try some silence. My barriers to this silence are probably the same as yours. First, although my time is abundant, it's also finite. I really didn't think I could meditate for 20 minutes twice a day like people were recommending. I knew I'd be setting myself up for failure if I started with these long sessions. Second, I'm not built to sit cross-legged on the floor. Ain't going to happen. If I was going to meditate, it was going to be sitting in a chair. Third, my mind is typically very active. It's like my head is full of bees. I could be quiet, but I wasn't sure if my mind could be quiet. And finally, I was going to have to be lenient on my practice. If I missed a few days, it was going to have to be okay. My world gets busy sometimes. So I looked around for some guided meditation that would fit my requirements, and I found a five-minute guided breathing meditation by Diane Winston from UCLA, of course, and I have the link for that in this article. And after some experimentation, I found that I liked the five-minute breathing meditation because it was only five minutes long. It has you sit comfortably, clear your mind, and focus on your breath. It's actually a lot like running without the running part. So I put this on my phone and on my desktop so I could find it conveniently. And in five minutes, I could do it in a taxi or on an airplane or sitting at my desk in the morning. And I also uh, experimented with some of the other apps out there. I tried the Headspace app on the iPhone, but I found it put me in too deep of a trance. It was almost like hypnotism, and I didn't like it at all. What I found, and what you may find, is that at first your mind cannot quiet. Your mind races from thought to thought. It's very common. It's a bit like when people talk about the runner's high. You get the impression that every time a runner goes out for a run, it's some sort of cosmic event or epiphany. People talk about their meditation practice the same way, like every session is a blast of clarity and peace. It doesn't work that way. Most runs are just runs. Every once in a while, you'll lock into that flow state and your run will become transcendental, both physically and mentally. Sitting in silence is the same. Most of the time, it's just sitting in silence and watching your mind run in circles. Every once in a while, you get some clarity or transcendence where you drop into that flow state. And just like with running, the more you practice, the better you get at achieving that flow state in your practice. And it's also individual-specific. Just like the running example, you may find it easier to find flow just because of your physiology and your background. 
And how do you manage it then if you don't know what to expect? Well, you approach it the same way you approach all new things. You approach it like a beginner or a student with a student's attitude. You have to approach the silent time without expectation. There is no success or failure. There is no goal. There is no competition. You can't out-meditate the other guy. You're just trying to quiet your mind. That's it. Your only commitment is to sit and practice and listen like a new and expectant student. In practice, what I have found that these sessions will go one of three ways for me. And I'll start with the bad ways first. <laughs> the first is the sunken mind session. This is when I'm sleep deprived or burned out or burning the candle at both ends or jet lagged. When I try to meditate in this state, my mind is too tired to handle it, and I tend to slip into almost unconsciousness. I'll nod off into it like a dream state. And it's relaxing, akin to a quick nap, but I don't get any useful insights or free space out of these sessions. And the second common thing is the agitated mind. Sakyong Mipan, who wrote the book Running with the Mind of Meditation – which uh, I've read, you should read it, describes this as trying to hold on to wild horses. This happens when I've got a ton of stress in my life or I'm over-caffeinated. In these sessions, my mind never quiets. It just keeps racing around in circles for the entire session. And in the third type of session, the good one is the silent mind. This is what you're trying to get to. It's when your mind becomes silent and clear of thoughts. And in this state, you'll find that time passes without you knowing it. In this state, you're accessing a different part of your unconscious mind. It's similar to the flow state that we've talked about before. It's a state without time. And when you exit one of these silent sessions, you're incredibly relaxed and refreshed. You have a calm attitude that you can carry with you into your day. You have mental energy and clarity. It's quite wonderful. And it changes your whole day and positively colors your interactions. It makes you better able to deal with stuff, and it really manifests for the whole day. In practice, tactically, all you need is a comfortable place to sit without distractions. Unfortunately, this is easier said than done. There aren't many places in our lives that are free of distractions. I'll sit down at my desk, and any number of things can and do happen. My phone might buzz. If I'm at home, the dog may walk up behind me and bark. Yeah, just bark. My, <laughs> my wife might choose that, you know, this is the moment she needs to talk to me. Our busy world seems to really distrust someone who's trying to be silent and takes great pains to tear us away from that practice. Now, one of the best ways around this is to get a good pair of headphones that cancel out as much of the noise as you can. And you can either use one of the guided meditation routines where some calm voice is talking you through the practice, or you can just grab some calming background music. I found that if I'm online, there are some great meditation music pieces on YouTube. I particularly like the ones with rain or water sounds in them. There is something very natural and relaxing about the water sounds. If my mind is particularly distracted, when I sit, I'll keep a pad in front of me so I can jot things down if I, if I really have to. So start with the shorter guided sessions, then have some, you know, this is my recommendation if you want to try this, is start with the shorter guided sessions, uh, 
And then when you have some practice, you can practice the silence without the guide or you can be your own guide. You can look at your thoughts from a detached point of view and gain some insights into what your mind is doing and why. And this is when it moves from being a relaxation tool into a tool for self-awareness. And I've experimented with different times of day as well, and I find first thing in the morning works best, especially if I'm up early. You do get some benefit from silence later in the day, but I find my mind is already at full speed and less open to the practice. Uh, You can also use the practice when you go to bed and your mind is keeping you awake. I don't get it done every day. I probably average 40, 50% of the time, depending on my schedule, but it seems to be a useful investment when I do. So there it is. That's my learning on meditation practice. Again, I'm an experiment of one. I'd say in general, it's a positive addition to your daily practice. It can help with relaxation and self-awareness, and it can quiet the mind, create space for a better version of you to exist. Okay, now we're going to move you towards the exit, please. Okay, my friends, this is where we choose to walk away from episode 4-325 of the Run Run Live podcast. For our next show, we're going to do something fun or maybe just strange or maybe just ego pandering. I'm going to have our friend Anne interview me. So if you have any burning questions you've always wondered about, shoot them off to me and I'll hand them to Anne. And if you have any burning sensations, that's another problem entirely, and you should probably see a doctor. And so here's my public service announcement. When you search for the Run Run Live podcast in the Apple iTunes store, you will see that there are two feeds for the Run Run Live podcast. At the end of the year, one of those feeds is going to get turned off by the IT department at the Run Run Live headquarters. And if you stop getting a new show every couple weeks on Friday, it's because... I was eaten by a kraken. No, it's because you subscribe to the wrong feed. You need to, and if you need further explanation on this whole feed thing, shoot me a note or search my site, my website, for a post on the feeds. I'm going to race a 5K Thanksgiving morning. I'm going to treat it as a tempo workout as part of my training plan. And I'm interested to see how I do after a couple of months of speed work. After that, I'm going to run the JG131 in Atlanta on the 13th of December, and I'm going to use it as a marathon pace training run just to see how that feels. This is all new ground for me. It's been a couple years. Then, December 27th, we're going to participate in the Groton Marathon as a long run, and anyone who is around Groton, Massachusetts, during the holidays, can swing by and run all or part of that with us. It's a good time. I haven't pulled the trigger on a target race yet, but I'm thinking about the Mississippi Blues Marathon in January with the Rock and Roll New Orleans as a backup in February. I'm just now getting into the dark part of my training campaign, and I wanted to make sure I don't break something before totally committing resources. So the New York City Marathon just happened, and you may remember I ran it last year as a sponsored blogger for the A6 team, and I had an epic time in New York City. And one of the many fine articles of running gear that A6 showered on me were a pile of tech socks. And I love these tech socks. They're awesome for running. And when I come back from running the trails with Buddy, I'll kick off my shoes and walk around the house in these tech socks. 
I've noticed that they have another interesting characteristic or attribute other than being awesome tech stocks. They pick up hair and lint like crazy. They are the Swiffer sweeper of socks. They must have like little Velcro hooks at the microscopic level. And I'm not sure if this is a good or bad attribute, but I do know there is someone else who lives in my house that throws around hair like a professional. And when I take these socks off, they're completely ensconced in dog hair, and it's hard to get off. Those socks really like the hair. They don't want to give up the hair. And when they come out of the dryer, the hair is still there, but it's clumped together in little hairballs, which makes it a little bit easier to get off. So here's a billion-dollar brand idea for you. Someone get P&G and Asics on the phone and propose the Swiffer Sweeper Socks. Combine it with a Fitbit tracker and an app, and you've got a winner. And while you're prancing around your house in hairy socks, I'll see you out there. And then he thought that he just couldn't die. So Ned, he laughed so hard it made him cry. And recording.